Hey everyone, it is Zoe Blasky. Welcome back to Motherkind, the show that's going to help you navigate the massive challenges of life as a modern mother with more acceptance, ease, joy, and purpose. If you do love the show, if you love learning, if you love feeling inspired and validated by what we talk about, please do hit that subscribe button. It makes a massive difference. It's December, which I like to call the Invisible Labour Olympics. Is there a month of the year when us as mothers have more plates spinning? I find this month incredibly intense. So for that reason, I don't put myself under the additional pressure of having to get a new podcast out every week. Instead, we re-release your most loved episodes of the year. And I've got to be honest with you, I was a little surprised at how much this episode landed with you all and how much you loved it. I'm so keen to bring a really wide variety of voices and expertise and experience onto the podcast. So I was really excited to interview Rupert Spira, who is a spiritual seeker and writer. But if I'm completely honest, I wasn't sure how it would land with you all. And it was one of the most loved episodes of 2022. I think that's because Rupert speaks with such eloquence and experience about how we can find more peace and happiness, which is what, of course, we all want in our day-to-day lives, isn't it? I'm really excited to be re-releasing this episode today. And I think even if you did listen last time, because it was one of our most popular episodes, if you're a regular listener, you probably did listen. Even if you did, I think this is one of those episodes you could listen to 10 or more times and you would get something different from it every single time. So let me know if that was the case with you if you listen again. And just before we get to the episode, just a reminder that because December is so intense for us mothers, I am going to be over on Instagram every single day supporting you with tools, ideas, validation, inspiration for how to get through this month, not only just surviving through it, but actually feeling like you are in control of your schedule. You are in control of how you feel. I'm going to be talking about boundaries. I'm going to be talking about family dynamics. I'm going to be talking about everything to do with invisible labor, emotional labor, mental load, everything that us mothers are carrying. So please do come over and join us. I'm going to be sharing some simple, but I think completely transformational ideas so that you can get to the end of this month, not feeling exhausted, but feeling fulfilled, calm, happy, maybe even experiencing some pockets of just that blissful peace and peace of mind. So come over and join us, zoe.blasky on Instagram. And here is the episode with Rupert. I hope you love it. Well, Rupert, welcome. I am so excited about this conversation and to have an hour with you is just a complete joy and honor. So thank you for your time this morning. Not at all. Thank you, um, Zoe, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I know that you're someone who likes to think about the big things in life. So I would like to start there with a really big question for you. And perhaps together, we can unpack it through the course of this chat. I see so many mothers today, me included, who are overwhelmed, stressed, really fearful about the world that we're raising our children into, really fearful of passing our own stuff on. Well, you know, that's definitely me. And 
following your teachings as I have done. I think what you're really incredible at is teaching and embodying that place of peace within ourselves so that all that noise and all that stress affects us less and we can live more from that place of joy, that essential self, I guess you would say. I would love this conversation to be almost like a roadmap of how a mother who's just pressed play on this podcast is feeling that stress and that fear and that control and that tension and that overwhelming responsibility of bringing these little beings into the world. How through your incredible wisdom and insights, we can help her through the course of this conversation feel less of that and more trust and a little bit more peace and a little bit more joy. What do you think? Big, big. That's a big essential question to start with. As you quite rightly say, for well, for most people in general, mothers, fathers in particular, life is hugely demanding. Thoughts, um, images, feelings, situations to deal with. Life consists of a kind of cacophony of thoughts and feelings and perceptions and situations and so on. But there is one aspect of our experience that we almost entirely overlook. And that is the fact that we are aware of our experience. There is more to our experience than just our thoughts, feelings, memories, perceptions, relationships, and so on. We are aware of all of these. If we are having a thought, we are aware of that thought. If we are having a feeling, if we're feeling stressed or overwhelmed or anxious or guilty or ashamed, we are aware of that feeling. If we are dealing with a situation with our child, whatever the situation is, we are aware of that situation. So there is the fact of being aware or the fact of awareness is always present in experience, but it lies, so to speak, in the background of experience. If we consider our thoughts, feelings, sensations, perceptions, and so on, the foreground of our experience, there is always this element of experience in the background that is knowing our experience or aware of our experience. And that one is always peaceful. The great secret in life, not just of parenthood, but the great secret of life, but certainly applies to parenthood, is to recognize this presence of awareness in the background of experience. Oh, I'm not just a bundle of thoughts and feelings. What I essentially am is the awareness that is aware of them. The thoughts and feelings are continually hearing, flowing, evolving, changing, disappearing. But I'm always present as the witness or the knower of this changing flow of experience. And it's because we lose contact with that that we become completely immersed in our thoughts and feelings and as a result stressed overwhelmed, anxious, afraid, and so on. So that would be the first step. In a way, it's taking a step back from the content of experience. By content of experience, I mean the ever-changing flow of thoughts, feelings, perceptions, and so on. Taking a step back, oh, there is something that is aware of all of these, and that is what I essentially am. That is my essential being or my essential self. So it's like stepping out of the drama of experience into the peace of awareness. It's so fascinating, isn't it? Because as a concept, I totally understand that and I get it. 
what I find, and I'm wondering if people listening find this as well, is that when I'm in it, when I'm in the, when you say the foreground, I love that. When I'm identifying with that foreground stress of anxiety, it feels so physical to me. All right. Can we do an experiment, Zoe? Yeah. Just imagine now you're in the full flight of motherhood. You're feeling stressed and anxious. I don't need to think too hard to imagine that. (laughs) We all know what that feels like. Now, I'm not going to ask you to describe that. It's not necessary. We all know what that feels like. But just imagine everyone that's listening, just very briefly, you were to describe to yourself the feeling of being stressed, anxious, afraid, and so on. We would all describe that in much the same way. And we have no difficulty describing it, describing the qualities of those feelings. Now, what if I were to ask you, first of all, are you aware of those feelings? The answer is obviously yes. Whatever feelings we're having, we are aware of them. Now, what if I were to ask you, describe the awareness with which you are aware of those feelings? What would you say? Describe the awareness with which I am aware of those feelings. You're aware of your feelings. When you, when you have a feeling, you say, you say, I am anxious or I am feeling anxious. So what is the I? Something called I is feeling dot, 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 anxious, afraid, lonely. So we know what the anxiety, the fear, the loneliness feels like. We don't need to describe that. We don't say there is anxiety. We say, I am feeling anxious. I am feeling lonely. I am feeling stressy. So what is it that feels the emotion? What is it that knows or is aware of the emotion? Whatever that is, is called I. I am aware of anxiety. So try to describe that I. It's obviously aware. I am aware of being stressed. What else would you say about this aware I? I don't know. Because in those moments, I tend to notice the physical sensation. So I'll be thinking, my my chest is tight. I'm going to pause you there, Zoe. You say, sorry to interrupt you. You say, in those moments, I tend to notice the physical dot, dot, dot. So you say, I tend to notice X, the physical sensation. So when you say, I notice, I notice the physical sensations. Don't describe physical sensations. When you say, I notice, who notices? What notices? I don't know. But it's what you call I. You say, I don't know, but it's what you call I. It's yourself. You say, I notice the sensations. Yeah. So I guess it's my, it must be, right. It's not my mind because I know I'm not my thought. Because you're aware of your mind. Your mind is the thoughts and feelings, the, the anxiety, the stress, the thought. But I notice my thoughts. I notice my feelings. I notice the tightness in my chest. What is this I that notices? Well, it's like you were saying, isn't it? It's that background. It's that. Perfect. It's in the background. It's aware of the stress, but it is not itself stressed. It's aware of the anxiety, but it is not itself anxious. It notices the constriction in your chest or your throat, the tightness of your shoulders, but it is not itself that constriction or tightness. So go there again. When you say, I notice the anxiety, how would you describe that I that notices? The word detached just came to me. Yes, detached in the sense of not affected by. Yeah, it's like the observer, isn't it? It's like there's a part of me that's able to observe what I'm experiencing in that moment. 
It's what enables you to say, I notice the tightness in my chest. It's another way of saying, I observe the tightness in my chest. I feel the tightness, but whatever it is that feels the tightness is not itself tight. It's just observing, knowing, watching, noticing, being aware of. And that one is always present in us as our deepest self, our deepest being, knowing our experience or noticing our experience, aware of our experience. But it is not itself a particular experience. It is aware of thoughts, but it is not itself a thought. It's aware of emotions, but it's not itself an emotion. It's just this aware presence, this noticing presence of awareness. And that one is always, it's always at peace, just simply watching, knowing, aware of, noticing, experience. But we overlook that one. When I say that one, it's our deepest self. It's our essential, irreducible being. But we overlook it because the content of experience, the foreground of experience, the thoughts, the feelings, the situations, the relationships are so intense that we overlook them. We overlook our being or the fact of being aware in favor of our thoughts and feelings. So we overlook it or ignore it. We lose ourselves in the content of experience. And that's why this recognition of our essential nature requires a kind of stepping back from experience, not in a cool, detached way. We don't become aloof and cold and detached or separate from experience, but we just recognize that there is something in us, there is some part of ourselves that is free, inherently free of the drama of experience. There's a place in us that is always at peace. That's the great secret of life, is to recognize that. Are we born more of our essential selves? Our essential self is always there. We could say it gets progressively covered up during our lives with thoughts, feelings, memories, activities, relationships, particularly emotions. It gets covered up. If we were to liken our essential self or being to the screen, then our thoughts, images, feelings, memories, activities, and so on would be like all the programs that are open on our screen, the emails, the photos, the documents, the spreadsheets, the movies, the YouTube clips, all of these are piled up, so to speak, on the screen. So when we're looking at them, we forget that we're looking at a transparent, empty, motionless screen. Why? Because we're so lost in the content. When we close down all the images, we realize, ah, oh, the screen was there all along. The screen has not been affected by the content of the email, the images in the photos, the drama in the movie. The screen was just there in the background all along, unaffected by the content of the programs. Well, our being or the presence of awareness is like the screen, always there in the background, motionless, silent, still, open, without resistance, but it is obscured by the intensity of our experience, the drama, the feelings, the thoughts, activities, and so on. And of course, for anyone, but for parents in particular, the content of experience is always intense, almost always intense and dramatic. There's always some drama going on, or almost always some drama with moments of respite. So it's difficult to maintain contact 
with our essential being that lies in the background of experience because we're always being pulled out of ourselves into the content, into the foreground, into the drama, into the situation, into the feelings. And, and, and so the great secret is, is to first of all notice the presence of awareness in the background of experience and then find pauses in the day. You know, if you're a busy parent, those pauses are going to be brief. There are lots of them, but they'll be brief. So you're not going to have time to sit down for 20 minutes every morning before your children wake up to close your eyes and recognize this presence of awareness in the background of experience. You're more likely to have 20 seconds in between activities, and then you get involved in an activity for 10 minutes, then another pause of 20 seconds. So there are innumerable pauses throughout the day. They don't need to be long. They can be five seconds, little gaps, little glimpses of the screen in between the programs. And you'll find if you just make contact, you just pause in between the thoughts, feelings, activities, and so on, and just make contact, reestablish one's contact with one's essential being numerous times throughout the day. It has a profound effect on the day because the being that lies in the background of experience, it's always at peace. It's like the screen. It's never disturbed. It doesn't need to be made peaceful. You don't have to interfere with the drama in a movie in order to make the screen peaceful. The screen is already peaceful. Whatever's happening in the drama of the movie, the screen is already and always peaceful. Well, our being is like that. It is always peaceful in the background of experience. So you would say this sort of striving that we have to do things to make us happy, do things to make our children happy, that's more of that foreground. Striving to be peaceful is a contradiction of terms. How could you strive? <laughs> How could striving lead to peace? Striving is the opposite of peace. It's such a relief, Zoe, when we realize peace is not something that need be brought about by effort, by practice, by discipline, or by even changing the content of experience. Our being, or I use the word being or being aware or awareness synonymously, our, our being or presence of awareness is already peaceful. It's a question of noticing it or recognizing it, not creating it. Let's say you're feeling anxious, that emotion, it's a disturbance. You don't have to change the anxiety in order to feel peace. All you need to do is to take a step back from the anxiety and recognize, oh, I am aware of the anxiety. I notice the anxiety. What is it that is noticing the anxiety? Whatever it is that is noticing the anxiety is not itself anxious. It is just witnessing, just knowing, just being aware of the anxiety. So it's like you take a step back from the intensity of the emotion, the anxiety in this case. You take a step back into yourself, deeper into yourself, to your being or the fact of being aware. And that one is already at peace. You don't need to create it. You don't need to touch the anxiety. You don't need to struggle with yourself. And I'm so interested to understand because there's so much sort of parenting sort of advice around how we help our children with their feelings, talking about their feelings. I can see you're feeling anxious. I can see you're labeling the experience for them. What I'm hearing from you is that perhaps it's more about helping them understand that underneath that weather, underneath that drama, underneath there is peace. How do you do this with a child and how can we model it and learn it so that they see us doing this? 
you've answered your own questions or you model it. You don't try to explain, well, you don't try to have the conversation that you and I are having with a four-year-old child or a six-year-old. You have to model it. That's the most important thing, model it, because children are very sensitive. They pick up, as you well know, they don't just read what's going on on the surface. They pick up the deep experience of their parents. So the most important thing is to, to feel this for oneself and model it. If you feel it and live it for yourself, then you are without even trying modeling it to your children. Your children will pick up. They'll just feel when there's a drama going on in the kitchen. They probably won't formulate it to themselves until they're adults for many years, but they'll they'll be aware. Oh, mum's cooking tea for three children. The phone's going. The plumber's mending. The, the, the There's just drama in the kitchen, but they will feel that there's this imperturbable quality in you doesn't mean to say that you're not engaged. You're multitasking. You're always multitasking as a mother or a father. But underneath that, they will feel, because you're in touch with your being, and your being is always silent, present, open, unaffected, imperturbable, they'll feel this quality in you. And then, of course, you can find skillful ways of speaking about it, obviously not in these rather kind of rational analytical terms that you and I are speaking. You can make a game out of it. I had um, some friends once who with their, I think he must have been about six at the time, they would play a game with him. Every time an emotion arose, if he came back from school, he was upset or he was lonely or he, they would have to get, oh, upset uh, has come to visit today. Loneliness is visiting you today. So they would personify the emotions and consider them guests that came to stay. Okay, loneliness has come for dinner today, and then loneliness leaves. In a playful way, you give the child the sense that loneliness is not what they are. It's what they experience. It's natural for anyone to feel loneliness, to feel upset, to feel hurt, and so on. But these are not emotions that define us. They're not what we essentially are. They are feelings that visit us, that come to us, that linger for a couple of hours, and then they leave. But what normally happens is that we we lurch from one feeling to another. We feel, I am lonely. I am sad. I am anxious. No, we are none of those things. We experience those things, but they are not what we are. What are we? We are simply this inherently peaceful presence of awareness that is totally open without resistance to the whole of life, to all experience, but no particular experience defines us. And with a child, there are playful ways. But first, most important thing is to model that for one's children. And then if the situation calls us to speak about it, to do so in an age-appropriate way, to make a game out of it or, or something like that. I love that. And I wanted to ask you something that you said. You said the child will always perceive what's going on at a deeper level. And that is absolutely my experience of growing up in a very loving home, but where lots was unsaid. I always knew what was really going on. But when I've shared that in the past, and to be honest, like I feel it a little bit too myself. It's like, oh, I'm so imperfect. And in any given moment, there is always so much going on for me at a deeper level. You know, I'm healing from so many of those tabs being open that were unhelpful and restrictive and trauma, you know, and it's hard, isn't it? Sometimes to hear that truth that our children are always picking up the deeper parts of us and to hold that contradiction that at the same time, there's always going to be, well, for me, I'll speak for myself. There's always in that deeper part of me, it's not always often a 
disturbance, as you would call it, as stress, something that is emerging in me that perhaps I'm triggered or, you know, I've had a thought earlier that's really upset me or, or one of my children has re-triggered, re-traumatized something that happened to me at the same age. So how do we hold those two truths that I'm so imperfect and I'm sure my children are picking up on tons of stuff I don't want them to. And yet that is the sort of truth they are picking up on that. How on earth do we square that circle? It's interesting that you said two, if not three times, I'm so imperfect. What model of perfection are you measuring yourself against? And do you know anyone who demonstrates that model of perfection? In other words, is it a a real attainable model of perfection? I certainly don't feel that I was a model of perfection as a parent. I've never met anyone who was. How would it be not to label those, those emotions as imperfections? Because if you feel them as imperfections, whether you realize it or not, you are transmitting that attitude to your child. Your child will grow up feeling, I am imperfect. I'm no good. I'm unlovable. I'm a failure. If you're doing that to yourself, you're breastfeeding it to your child. I think there's still a part of me that so wants to be this sort of clean slate that all the generational trauma is going to stop with me and I'm going to heal it and I'm not going to pass it on. And there's so much pressure. <laughs> you are that clean slate. Your being in the background of experience is that clean slate. You're not going to become it. You are already that. The clean slate is not something you're going to become after 30 years of work on yourself when you've cleaned up all the generational trauma, the early wounds, etc. No, that's never going to happen. But that's the bad news. But the good news is you are already that clean slate. That clean slate is prior to the content of your experience. It's not something that is going to be developed as a result of the work you do on yourself. That's the thing to be able to go all the way back through the feelings, through the layers of trauma to your innocent being that you are at the core of yourself and to realize that that one is already free of your family trauma, already free of your childhood wounds, already free of your imperfections as a parent. If you begin to feel that, and this becomes the place, so to speak, where you live, you will be communicating that to your child. Your child will sort of through, just through empathy, through osmosis, pick up, you will be taking them to that place in themselves without having to speak of it. They won't have to fight with their emotions. Emotions won't be considered imperfect manifestations, things that you shouldn't really be feeling. No, it's natural to feel all these, this flow of emotions, sadness, anxiety, sorrow, shame and so on. These are not things that need to be perfected. They're just part of the of our conditioning. They don't need to be improved or perfected so that we might become this perfect person. No, the perfection lies in our being behind the content of experience. We can't become that. We are already that. So that takes off them the pressure, oh, I'm so imperfect. If you're saying to yourself, I'm so imperfect, that's what you're saying to your child. Your child is growing up with, mum thinks I'm imperfect. That's crippling for a child. You can't say to yourself, I feel that I'm imperfect, but I think my child is wonderful. Perfect. No. If you think you're imperfect, you think everybody else is imperfect. If you think you're failing, you'll think your child is failing. Is that what you want to give to your child? 
to grow up in an atmosphere of the I'm always failing, I'm no good, I'm impact. No, you want to praise your child. You want to encourage your child. You want your child to feel good about themselves and positive. And, and if you're not doing that with yourself, you're not, not doing that with your child. And if you feel one thing about yourself, but you say something else to your child, the child will know you're faking it. The child will always pick up on the deep feeling behind your words, irrespective of what your words actually say. My background self, essential self, is perfection personified is what I'm hearing you say. The imperfection and the struggles and the challenges is the human experience. That's all your conditioned thoughts and feelings, yes. And we each have a different package of thoughts, feelings, experiences, and, and so on. The perfection never lies there. The peace never lies in the content of experience. The peace is always in the background of experience, irrespective of the content. And is this a belief that we can choose to believe, or do we just know it? That's what I'm thinking. No, to have it as a belief, that doesn't make any difference. We have to feel it. We have to recognize. When I asked you, don't describe your emotions. Describe what it is that notices your emotions. You went silent. You had turned your attention away from your emotions because I didn't ask you to describe your emotions. If I'd asked you to describe your emotions, you would have given your attention to your emotions. But I asked you, no, tell us about that which notices. When you said, I notice the tightness in my chest, I asked you, describe what it is that notices that tightness. And you paused. In that pause, I could feel it in you. I could see it in you. You, you were turning your attention away from the tightness, trying to find that in yourself that notices the tightness. And in the end, you said something like, I'm not sure or I don't know, which was a beautiful way of saying, whatever that is, it has no qualities that I can describe. That's what you, when you said, I don't know, or I'm not sure. You say that, and it, that was the best answer you could have given. Your, well, your silence was the very best answer. But the second best answer was when you said, I don't know, I'm not sure. Because what you were really saying is, whatever that is that notices my experience doesn't have any qualities. It's not agitated. It's not anxious. It's not stressed. That, that's a, a negative way of saying it's peaceful. It's just open. It's just available. Just open without resistance to the entire content of experience, whatever the content of experience. It's like the space in a room. The space in a room is just open, inherently open to whatever takes place in the room. The space doesn't mind what takes place in the room. The space is open without resistance to whatever takes place in the room. And the space is always peaceful. The space of awareness, our essential nature of awareness is like that. Just open without resistance to all experience, watching or knowing experience. Not aloof, totally one with experience, intimately one with all experience, but at the same time, independent of it. So this combination of being one with experience, it's not an aloof noticing, it's a loving noticing. It's a, an impartial but loving awareness of the content of experience. This ad is organised and funded by Sanofi's Together Against RSV campaign. You might be thinking, what is RSV Zoe? And I've just been learning all about it. So let me tell you. Respiratory syncytial virus, easy for me to say, or RSV as it's more commonly known, 
is a really common virus that causes infection in the lower part of the respiratory system in babies and children. In fact, 90% of all children, by the time they reach two, will unfortunately experience a respiratory virus. But the good news is that most RSV illnesses are mild and clear upon their own. But unfortunately, some cases can be more serious. Bronchitis and pneumonia are types of these infections that you might have heard of that are often caused by RSV. In fact, when Jessie was little, about eight months, she had quite severe bronchitis. And I do wish I'd known more about it and how to manage it before it happened. So if you want to get yourself clued up on RSV, what it is, what can be done to prevent it and how to spot the signs and symptoms so that you can be better prepared with your children, then you can visit Sanofi's Together Against RSV website for further information www.togetheragainstrsv.com and there you'll find loads of helpful advice about infant RSV. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively and therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe, non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash motherkind. Back to the episode. I want to ask you a bit more about the emotional experience because one of my big patterns would be that I would have an emotion and it would feel so overwhelming to me that I would try and push it away. I'd like grab my phone or I would eat something when I was younger or whatever it might have been. And so I'm wondering, in order to get to that blank screen, do we have to move through the emotion? Do we have to sit with it? Do we have to feel it? Or do we just close the tab? Well, again, when you were describing that, you said, I would notice the emotion. And then you said, the emotion was so overwhelming to me. So again, here, these two statements, I would notice the emotion right there, even in common parlance. We express the fact that I notice the emotion. And then you said, the emotion is so overwhelming to me. And again, by saying this, you indicate that you are not the emotion. You are being overwhelmed by the emotion. Yes, the emotion is so overwhelming to me. Who is this I? Who is this me that is noticing the emotion, that is being overwhelmed by it? So do we have to move through the emotion? to have access to our essential self or do we do we close the tab or do we turn away from the emotion what we normally do exactly as you say so you you feel this overwhelming emotion and the emotion is unbearable it's uncomfortable to the point of being unbearable so in order to distract ourselves from the discomfort of the emotion we give our attention to something else as you say we check our phone we go to the fridge we each have our little repertoire of objects or substances or activities that more or less successfully distract us 
from having to feel the discomfort of the moment. As long as you're checking your text messages, then momentarily you have relief from that uncomfortable emotion, whatever it is for each of us. And of course, as soon as the distraction wears off, the discomfort of the motion, it hasn't disappeared. We just distracted ourselves from it for 10 seconds or two minutes. As soon as the distraction wears off or comes to an end, the emotion is still there. So yes, the first step would be to have the courage not to distract ourselves from the uncomfortable emotion, not to turn away from it, but to turn towards it. That would be the first step. And that, for many of us, that already is very intense because all our lives we have been accustomed, as soon as we have a, an uncomfortable emotion, get me out of here. What can I do? How can I distract myself? As we all know, we distract ourselves for a certain amount of time, but when the distraction comes to an end, the emotion is just right there. It doesn't work. We just postpone dealing with it. So first step, turn towards the emotion instead of turning away from it. And then as we're now facing the emotion, we ask ourselves, okay, but who am I really? Am I the emotion itself or am I that which notices it? Oh, I am the one that notices the emotion. I am the awareness with which I am aware of the emotion. So now you, you're not totally immersed in the emotion. You take a step back. Oh, I am noticing that. Who is this I? Oh, it's just the presence of awareness. And you could visualize that as, um, you could say it's the space within which, the space of awareness within which the emotion arises and with which it is known. And the space, the space of awareness has no agenda with the emotion. If you were, you're sitting quietly in your study now, but if you were to stand up and start dancing or fighting or would the space mind? No. Why would the space not mind? Because the space is not affected by what you do. Likewise, the presence of awareness, the space of awareness within which the emotion arises and with which the emotion is known is not affected by the emotion. And so for this reason, it can turn towards the emotion and say, you're welcome. You're turning towards the emotion of anxiety, for instance. All our lives, we've been trying to get rid of or distract ourselves from the emotion of anxiety. The one thing we've probably never done is befriend it, turn towards it and say, you're welcome. My peace is not dependent on you. You can stay in me for as long as you like. It's like, what is the attitude of the sky to a thundercloud? Does the sky ever say to the thundercloud, oh, I have to get rid of you as quickly as possible because you're depriving me of my peace. No. The sky just says to the thundercloud, you're welcome. You just stay as long as you like. Just pass through at your own pace. And then the thundercloud passes through and the sky remains as it always is. Well, we are like that. Our being, the presence of awareness is like that. We're like the, the sky of awareness through which these emotions flow. And the sky of awareness never has an agenda with the emotions. It never says, I can't bear this. It's overwhelming. I must turn away. No, it always says, you're welcome. I'm not affected by you. You cannot deprive me of my innate peace. So you're welcome. Stay for as long as you like. That's probably the one thing that we've never done. Even to label these feelings negative feelings or 
imperfect feelings is to have an attitude towards them. Who said they were imperfect? Did the sky of awareness say that thunderclouds were imperfect? No, of course not. These are not imperfect feelings. They are just an inevitable consequence of our conditioning, an inevitable consequence of embodied parental life. It's part of the drama, the chaos of life. They're completely normal. By labeling them imperfect or negative, or at that moment, we cease being the presence of awareness. So to answer your question, yes, that first step, don't turn away from the emotion. Recognize I am the presence of awareness with which the emotion is known and within which the emotion appears. As take your stand as that, turn towards it. Not just turn towards it. You can actually positively welcome it. You could be loving towards it instead of judging it imperfect. Oh, my old friend's anxiety has come to visit again. All my life, I've been at war with you. I'm going to do the opposite now. I'm going to befriend you. You're welcome. Stay for as long as you like. That has such a profound effect on the emotion. Isn't it such a dichotomy that we're all really sort of wanting the same thing, which is to feel good and feel more moments of joy and happiness and I guess so many of us get taught this idea that the way to get that is to avoid all the quote-unquote, as you said, bad things, to acquire things that give us those shots of happiness. And what I'm really hearing is that actually the true path to that, more of that happiness and more of that joy is just to welcome in the full experience, knowing that it's just weather. It's weather and knowing that we are the sky in which the weather appears. And the nature of the sky is openness, peace, joy. So joy is not an emotion that fluctuates with anxiety. Joy is what happens when there is a window in our emotions onto the background of awareness. So joy and peace are like the blue sky. Stress, anxiety, fear, guilt, shame, sorrow, etc. are like the clouds. The joy is not another cloud in the sky. It is the nature of the sky itself. It's always there. It's not always experienced, just as the blue sky is not always experienced, because it's often completely covered with clouds. But when the blue sky is covered with clouds, the blue sky hasn't disappeared. It's just been veiled. Well, our innate peace is like that. It's always there. Even in the midst of a deep depression, this peace and quiet joy are always there in the background of experience as our very own being. But it is veiled by the depression, by the sorrow, by the anxiety. So moments of happiness are windows in the cloud cover of our suffering onto the background of peace that is our true nature. So you're absolutely right. Finding peace and happiness has got nothing to do with manipulating the content of experience. It does work, though, because I know that when I buy myself, let's say, a new pair of shoes I wanted, when I open the box and I open them, I get that experience of joy. I'm like, oh, I feel good. Okay, you're perfect. Now, if your new shoes had created that experience of joy, then whenever you saw your shoes or whenever you were wearing them, you should feel the same joy. But six months later, your shoes are in your cupboard. You open your cupboard 
you survey your shelf of shoes, you come across these red shoes that gave you that burst of joy when you opened the box six months ago. Does it give you a burst of joy again? No. Well, if the red shoes were the cause of your joy, then whenever you see them in the cupboard, they should give you the same burst of joy, but they don't. Therefore, the red shoes cannot themselves have been the cause of your joy. But you're absolutely right. The first time you saw them, they did give you this burst of joy. So what is happening at that moment? Up until you open the box with the red shoes, you are in a, a state of, let's say you're in a state of mild anxiety, mild stress. There's some level of discomfort, yes? And that discomfort is a, a mixture of thoughts and feelings. You're feeling anxious, you're feeling upset, you're feeling stressed, and so then package comes through the door. You open the box, there are the red shoes. At that moment, there is a burst of joy. What has happened? The red shoes, the acquisition of the red shoes have brought your anxiety and your stress to an end. And at that moment, your thoughts and feelings come briefly to an end. And at that moment, you experience the background of joy that is your nature. You attribute that joy to the red shoes. No, the red shoes are not the cause of the joy. The red shoes caused your emotion, your thoughts and feelings to briefly come to an end. The anxiety disappeared. The stress disappeared for a moment. In other words, the clouds parted and you felt the background of joy. And you wrongly attributed that joy to the red shoes. And therefore you thought, okay, the red shoes have the power to make me happy. Of course, Three weeks later, they no longer do so. So you go and buy a pair of green shoes. Sure enough, when you open the box, your anxiety comes to an end. You feel the joy that is the nature of your being. You wrongly attribute the joy to the green shoes. Three weeks later, the green shoes no longer have that capacity. You go out and buy another pair of shoes. And you wonder, after 20 years, why aren't I always feeling joy? All the objects, all the substances, all the activities, all the relationships that I thought would give me joy. They don't. The joy has worn off. And after a while, we begin to suspect maybe the joy that I long for, the peace that I long for, cannot be brought about by an object, a substance, an activity, a relationship. If happiness was brought about by a person, then we'd all marry and live happily ever after with the person we first fell in love with. They seem to be the cause of our joy and the cause of our love. Well, I don't need to describe what happens, but the person that was once the cause of our joy, five years later, becomes the cause of our misery. If we head into a relationship thinking, this person is going to make me happy, that is a recipe for disaster. Because a person can never make us happy. An object can never make us happy. A child can never make us happy. Can they make us unhappy? Ultimately, no. No, it's not the child that makes us unhappy. It's not the situation that's unhappy. It's we who give our circumstances the permission to take us away from ourselves. It is we who invest our happiness in the child. And therefore, we invest our unhappiness in the child. We give the child or the object or the substance, the relationship, whatever it is, the permission either to make us happy or unhappy. That's a recipe for misery. This is something we should all be taught early in life, that to invest one's happiness in an object, a substance, an activity, or a relationship is a recipe for misery. 
Yeah, because if happiness came from acquiring things and success, then the richest people would be the happiest. And what I see is the inverse. The richest, most successful people I know are the unhappiest. Yes. We don't have to go far to see it. We could just call it red shoes syndrome. Well, you know, whether we invest our happiness in wealth, in health, in a relationship, in red shoes or whatever it is, sooner or later, whatever it is or whoever it is that we have invested our happiness in is going to let us down in one way or another. And if we have invested our happiness in them, we will feel miserable. Which is kind of exciting and liberating because it's an inside job. But it's also kind of depressing because it's like, well, if none of this stuff that I'm aiming for is going to make me ultimately feel happy, why bother? How do we find the motivation? Take me in the podcast. How do I find the motivation to keep going if I know that actually another million downloads ultimately isn't going to make a difference to how I feel? You'll do your job even better than you already do it, Zoe. You'll do it with even more passion, even more commitment. As a result of this understanding, we don't just withdraw from the world and sit in bed all day long thinking, well, what's the point of doing anything? My happiness is not dependent on anyone. We cease using the world in service of our own happiness. And instead, we use our own happiness in service of the world. Oh, I like that. So actually, you might go out even more. You might be even more passionate. You might have this recognition. So yes, I've had a taste of what I essentially am is already at peace, is already fulfilled. I don't need um, objects, substances, activities, and relationships for that peace. But that doesn't mean that I no longer desire objects, substances, relationships, and so on. You can still desire relationship, but no longer for the purpose of making you happy, rather for the purpose of sharing your happiness, celebrating your happiness, communicating it. So I think it would be very unlikely as a result of this understanding that you're going to think tomorrow, oh, well, okay, my happiness is no longer dependent on the success of my podcast. I'm going to fold it. No, you're going to think I'm even more passionate about sharing this understanding because this means that all 7.8 billion of us are inherently happy, inherently peaceful. I want to help people to recognize that. I want to help, in your case particularly, I want mothers to recognize their inherent peace in the midst of the drama of their family lives. You'll find your podcast will grow as a result of this understanding. You're motivated. So in, in a way, it's a kind of impersonal motivation that you have, by which I mean your motivation is no longer your own personal happiness because you've found the source of happiness in yourself. But you now want to share that with everyone. So your, your motive becomes impersonal. You're successful already, but you'll just be 10 times more successful. You'll reach 10 times more people. Which I guess is like the true meaning of being in service, isn't it? It's like I no longer need these things for me. I, I'm overspilling in service. I have so much to give. Exactly. Perfect. You're, you're overspilling. You found the source of peace in yourself. And in your particular way, you have particular skills in your particular way. You want to share this with mothers, fathers, and so on. Is that a different way then of we could apply the same to parenting, right? Which is what you were saying. If I can find, or everyone listening can find that place, we then just overspill the love and the presence and it becomes less of this parenting as a verb and more of a, a thing that we just are and we overspill the love and the compassion. And your children will feel it. Children, as you know, they are so sensitive. They will feel this and you will be communicating this understanding to them without ever speaking it. Of course, 
there probably will be times as your children go up where they ask you a specific question and then you can articulate this understanding in an age-appropriate way. But even if you're not speaking about these matters with your children, you're communicating it to them all the time. For instance, my son, he's 22 now. He is not overtly interested. He's very respectful about what I do, but he's not overtly interested in it. He's never asked me a specific question, at least not about the content of what I do. Although he's very respectful, but he's never asked me specifically about the content. And so I've never spoken to him directly about it. But because it's my life, because I, at least to the best of my ability, I, I, I live this understanding, I feel that I'm communicating it to him subliminally or pre-verbally all the time. And I'm sure as he grows older, I'm sure that there will be conversations, but I don't mind if there aren't, because this understanding communicates itself really in the way we live, in the way we are, not just what we say. Does this understanding, taking your son, 22, emerging into the world, I would make up, well, I don't know, I'll talk for myself. When my girls are that age, I suspect I will have worries. Are they going to be okay? There's loads of addiction in my family. Are they going to, does this understanding of underneath all of that weather is this essential self? Can we use this to diminish some of that huge parental fear and anxiety, which of course leads us to control or leads me to control my children? How can that understanding help us alleviate some of that fear? It's completely natural as a parent to be concerned for one's children. And I imagine that goes on forever to a greater or lesser extent. I don't think that ever comes to an end. Certainly it doesn't It doesn't in me. Of course, I'm concerned. My son has just left university. He's doing an internship. He doesn't know whether he's going to turn into a full-time job. So, so one's concerned. There's always some level of concern. And that needn't go away. I don't mean to imply in this understanding that those concerns would go away. It's just that there's, it's just that in the background of these concerns, there is a peace that softens them, that we don't get completely lost in them. I don't mean to imply that these concerns disappear, because if I were to imply that, then we would all feel that we were failing, because we all feel these concerns. And we thought, oh, if I'm feeling these concerns, therefore, I'm not truly in touch with this background of peace. No, not at all. The concerns go on in the foreground, and it's appropriate that they do. If parents were not deeply concerned about their children, the human race would have come to an end long ago. It's appropriate, of course, that we're concerned. And if our child is sick, for instance, or in danger, that then the intensity of that concern heightens dramatically. And it's appropriate that it does. And if it does, it's not a failure of this understanding. But in the midst of that concern, there is just this feeling of background peace. And if we're in touch with this background of peace, it subliminally transmits itself to our children. We're modeling for our children how to behave in the face of our intense emotions. That must be one of the greatest gifts we can give our children. Mm, that's beautiful. And funnily enough, the final question that I ask every guest is about a gift. So you could, you're welcome to say the same thing or something different. And that's, if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? The one gift I would like to give is this gift of, of simply being, this access to our being, which lies behind 
the content of our experience. But I'd like to package that gift in a poem, if I may. It's a poem that I wrote for children. The poem is an attempt to express this understanding in a child-friendly way, in a way that one could take a child to this understanding in themselves. So the gift is really the gift of going to one's being in the background of experience. And, and the poem is the, is the packaging in the gift. And, and the gift is called, I am always I. And of course, I, in this case, doesn't refer to our thoughts and feelings and so on. I refers to our essential nature of being or being aware. So it's called, I am always I. I'm not always happy. I don't always feel free. I'm not always lonely, but I am always me. I'm not always naughty. I sometimes feel shy. I'm not always hungry, but I am always I. I'm not always sleepy. I don't often cry. I'm not always messy, but I am always I. I'm not always nice. I don't always try. I'm sometimes forgetful, but I am always I. Once I was two. For a while I was three. I'm not always four, but I am always me. Sometimes I'm lazy, but I don't ever lie. I'm not always cheerful, but I am always I. I'm not always right, but I do what I can. I may not be perfect, but I am what I am. Everything changes, so what can I be? I cannot be anything, but I am always me. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. That's my, my gift to parents and to children. That's beautiful. I'll, I'll make sure I pop that in the show notes as well. And I'm suspecting that lots of people listening are going to want more. How can people access more of you? Well, I've got a ridiculous number of clips on YouTube. So go to my YouTube channel, have a look there. My website, rupertspira.com. And if they want to ask, have a conversation or ask something, come to my webinars. I do webinars every Sunday and Thursday afternoons. I usually give a brief guided meditation and we have a conversation where people can ask questions. So those would be the three ways to access uh, YouTube, my website, and webinars. And the details of my webinars are, are on my website. Beautiful. Thank you. I'll link them as well. So they're super easy for everyone to find. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute honor. And thank you for, you know, you've really helped me personally as well. So thank you for your generosity. Not at all. Um, thank you, as I say, for inviting me. Tell me, how old are your daughters? Two and six. Two and six. Okay. Well, I wish you the very best. And um, thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. <laughs>